When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the brand new series of Hidden Histories in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the BBC's prestigious New Generation Thinkers Scheme. Since 2010, the New Generations Thinker Scheme has developed a new generation of 100 academics who can bring the best of university research and scholarly ideas to a broad audience through the media and public engagement. It's a chance for early career researchers to cultivate the skills to communicate their research findings to those outside the academic community. I am thrilled to be able to invite a selection of New Generation Thinkers to discuss their research on the podcast. The guests on this series of Hidden Histories discuss a multitude of fascinating topics, from famine relief over the last two centuries to the dark side of the Italian Renaissance. There is more information on the New Generation Thinker Scheme on the Arts and Humanities Research Council webpage, detailing events, programmes and reading material relating to the scheme and the NGT's research. I'll link all of this in the show notes, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special series. Victoria Donovan, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk today about post-Soviet culture and post-Soviet landscape. So what was so special about the Russian Northwest and why was it singled out for reconstruction after World War II? Well, the Russian Northwest is a region with a special place in the, in the cultural imagination of the country. It's a region that is heavily populated with old Russian architecture. So onion-domed Orthodox churches and medieval Kremlins. And these objects today are the ones that you see on the front of tourist guidebooks and hanging on the walls of Russian embassies on posters. Um, They're the objects that now today have come to be associated with Russian national identity. And I suppose you might think that the association of this architecture with the Russian national idea is something that happened after the collapse of socialism, particularly given that the Soviet Union was notoriously anti-religious and that it was supposed to be an internationalist state that didn't value one national culture more highly than any of the others. But in actual fact, this isn't the case. And in my book, Chronicles in Stone, I explore how the Northwest came to be associated with a Russified Soviet national idea in the post-war period, partly because this region was really heavily damaged during the war and its reconstruction was connected with ideas of Russia's post-war renewal and resurgence, how it was rising like a phoenix from the ashes of 
the devastation of war and then how the architecture was marketed to Soviet audiences as the symbols of national identity. And I look in the book at how the heritage politics of the Soviet period then came to inform local understandings and perceptions of the architectural landscape, how the people living in that region today continue to see the architectural heritage as an expression of local identity. So what was Joseph Stalin's attitude to Russia's historic architecture? This would be then during the Soviet period. Well, I think when we think about Stalin and his attitudes to Orthodox churches, we usually think about these famous images of iconoclasm. And it's true that in the 1930s, the Stalinist state was really actively engaged in demolishing, sometimes in quite dramatic fashion, many really important Orthodox churches across the country. But this this changed in the Second World War period, partly because large, large parts of the Soviet Union, including two of the regions that I look at, Novgorod and Pskov in the Russian Northwest, they were occupied by the Germans. And Novgorod, for example, which is a couple of hours south of St. Petersburg, was located on the front line of the fighting during the Second World War. And its historic architecture was caught up in the, in the violence. So, you know, church belfries and the thick medieval walls of the, of the, of the churches in that region, they were all kind of embroiled in the fighting and got really damaged at that time. And the Stalinist regime saw the propaganda potential in that architectural ruination. And it exhibited it to Soviet audiences in exhibitions of photography and even in photograph albums that were circulated to Soviet soldiers on the front line. And the idea behind that was to stimulate a feeling of patriotic consciousness, to highlight the damage that barbarians, as they were called, were doing to the historic architecture of the country as they tried to wipe Slavic heritage and culture from the face of the earth, as historians put it later. And after the war, when the Soviets had recaptured the territories that had been occupied by the Germans, there was a drive to restore the country's most important old Russian towns. And this was partly in, in, informed by the interests of really powerful heritage lobbies, preservationist lobbies at the time, which included some really influential cultural figures like Dmitry Likachov, the medieval historian and cultural critic. Um, but it was also part of a broader campaign to advertise the Soviet Union's resilience and its renewal in the wake of war. So the reconstruction of the Northwest's medieval architecture at that time came to be linked with an idea of Russia's cultural renaissance. It's, it was part of that triumphalist, victorious myth of war that emerged after 1944. So architecture and patriotism sort of came hand in hand at this point. How did architectural reconstruction support then the patriotic politics of the post-war period? Yeah, the reconstruction of the Northwest, as I said, was part of the patriotic effort to demonstrate the Soviet Union's resilience and cultural renewal after the war. And at this time, the Soviet state placed primacy on the reconstruction of old Russian architecture in particular, um, because they believed that old Russian architecture held the potential to be marketed to Soviet publics as an expression of a Russified Soviet national identity. And in the preservationist legislation that was passed directly after the war, that architecture, the architecture of Kiev and Rus, 
were singled out for priority above and beyond architecture of other periods, and particularly the architecture of the pre-revolutionary period, the capitalist period, which was quite ideologically problematic. And the Soviets had to do, as you can imagine, quite a bit of convoluted reasoning to explain why they were endorsing orthodox architecture of the of the Kievan period. They were supposed to be an atheist state, supposedly internationalist, so how could it have its roots in old Russian church architecture? But I think, you know, they managed it to an extent, and they did it by perceiving or presenting an idea of this architecture as an expression of authentic national identity, Russian and Soviet national identity, drawing on the historic myths of the region, Novgorod as a medieval centre of democratic politics, and Peskov as a historic military fort post that had repelled foreign invaders across the ages. All of this was kind of mixed into a, a discourse about how the region's architecture encapsulated and represented a particular patriotic ideal of the Soviet state. And this idea was reiterated, too, in, in newspapers and publications at this time. So there was one uh, really interesting newspaper article that I came across, which articulated really well the conceptual transformation that had happened to Orthodox churches, as, as, as it was seen. And it, it said something like, you know, Orthodox churches in the past have been associated with the irritating clanging of bells and the saccharine smell of incense. But now in the Soviet period, we understand them correctly as architectural monuments, the historic heritage of the Russian and the Soviet states. So this this kind of idea about how they transformed from being religious objects to cultural ones uh, was really fundamental to the reasoning of the Soviet state about why it was OK to preserve that architecture. And did much of that change after Stalin's death? Yeah, it did. So the Khrushchev regime that immediately came after the Stalinist administration initially rejected what it perceived to be Stalin's Russian chauvinism. And it advocated a return to the Leninist internationalism of the early Soviet era. And with that rejection of Russian chauvinism, the heritage of the old Russian era was downgraded to just not the symbols of Soviet cultural identity as it had been initially in the immediate post-war period, but just plain old historic monuments. But in the Brezhnev era, so the, the 1960s to the 1980s, some of that Russian ethno-nationalism of the Stalinist period began to creep back in. And the preservation of old Russian heritage again became a cause celebre for the Soviet state. I think an interesting development at this time was the creation of the All-Russian Society for the Preservation of Cultural and Historical Monuments, VAPIK, which is essentially something like an equivalent to the British National Trust. And I suppose the difference is, though, that while the National Trust in Britain is, it tends to be a kind of middle class affair, VAPIK was a much more all-encompassing organisation. Membership of VAPIK was voluntary, but like lots of voluntary activities in the Soviet Union, there was an expectation that everybody would get involved. So members of VAPIK would contribute to the upkeep of local heritage buildings. They painted fences around old Russian churches. They weeded the gardens and they did kind of minor repair work to buildings. So they, they interacted with heritage objects really closely. And Vapik also worked with schools and museums to promote an idea of heritage preservation among different generations of people and people from different backgrounds. And another important development, I think, at this time was the emergence of heritage tourism. 
So in the 1960s and 70s, the towns of the Northwest began to be marketed really actively as Soviet tourist destinations. And people from all over the country, from uh, Moldova to Uzbekistan, came to the Northwest to admire these historic buildings. And the heritage wasn't exhibited as something exclusively Russian in tourism. It was it was associated with a broader Soviet national idea, mostly through this linking to the Second World War and the fact that it had been destroyed during wartime and then rebuilt in an active patriotic renewal in the post-war period. So in that way, tourists were able to appreciate it not as something foreign to them if they weren't Russian, but rather as something fundamental to their Soviet national identity. And you can see that they were fairly successful in making that link. One of the sources that I look at in the book are museum response books, where tourists left their comments about the exhibitions that they visited. And, you know, there's entries from the St. Sophia Cathedral, the, the most important medieval church in Novgorod, that tourists left saying that, you know, they really appreciated the efforts that the Soviets had gone to to, to restore this historic heritage, and they felt kind of really impressed and proud that these these monuments existed and that they, that they were part of their national culture. So it seems that, to an extent, they were successful in this effort to brand these historic buildings as objects of Soviet national identity. So do you think that there was much difference between the regional and national attitudes towards this this type of preservation? Were they working in tandem or do you think there was quite they were quite distinct in the way they did things? I think there were differences. So one thing that's important to understand is that local officials who worked in regional governments, they'd been socialized in the Stalinist era of kind of anti-religious policy and, you know, crash urban modernization. So this idea that they were going to commit resources and particularly precious resources in the post-war period that could be committed to other more pressing political concerns like building housing or restoring roads. The idea that they'd commit their local resources to rebuilding Orthodox churches seemed quite absurd to some people. And you can see from the writings of local historians and preservationists in the post-war period that there were quite a lot of very intense arguments between preservationists and local authorities in the region. In the post-war period, some quite hardline preservationists advocated creating zones of restricted construction around the historical centres of towns. They wanted to stop, you know, high-rise buildings being built next to old Russian churches and, and Kremlins and to keep those historic centres as, as preservation zones. But the local authorities often had a very different vision for the towns and they wanted to build residential housing and government buildings in the most convenient area and in the most symbolically important area, which was often the historic centres. And both the local authorities and the preservationists would appeal to the central authorities to try and get their visions of the towns endorsed. And you can see if you visit the towns today that ultimately the local authorities got their way. And there was this kind of combination of old and new architecture that ultimately emerged in the in the historic, the former historic centres of the towns, which can sometimes seem quite jarring and inappropriate. So, you know, you can come across an old a sort of small medieval church, which is boxed in on all sides by socialist housing. And that can look quite sort of unnatural and, and inappropriate. And preservationists were really livid about some of these developments and wrote about them in local newspapers and in publications. And those are some of the sources that I look at in the book too. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And how did heritage preservation contribute to the bolstering of a national identity and that idea of patriotic sentiment in the later Soviet era? Well, By the end of the Soviet Union, preservation had really become a rallying point for anti-Soviet sentiment, and in some cases, rising Russian ethno-nationalist sentiment as well. And I think, you know, you can link this to the policies of the Soviet states that promoted preservation, preservationist questions and, and encouraged consciousness of these questions among local communities. So in a sense, by creating organizations like VAPIK, the Soviet National Trust, and drawing people's attentions to the value of cultural heritage, that the Soviets created the rod for their own backs. You know, people were learning about the status of these objects as symbols of national identity in schools and museums. But then when they went out and about in their everyday lives, they often encountered buildings that weren't very well preserved, that the local authorities had neglected or allowed to fall into rack and ruin. And this highlighted for people a kind of hypocrisy on the part of the Soviet government in terms of, you know, what they were preaching and what they were practicing. There's an interesting letter, actually, from the 1980s that I found in the Pskov archives from a local woman who articulated this perceived hypocrisy. She said something along the lines of, you know, I'm listening to the radio constantly about how important it is for us to preserve our architectural monuments and how these, you know, these historic buildings are are objects of national and local identity. But then I can see from my bedroom window a church that's being used as a rubbish dump and there's a tourist bus that passes it every day and it's really shameful and, you know, what's going on here? Why aren't we preserving this church if we're 
mouthing off on the radio constantly about how important these issues are. And I think that was a, a general feeling that there was a real disconnect between the, the rhetoric and the reality of preservation. And that contributed, I think, to a rising disillusionment with politics at that time that really became very pronounced by the end of the Soviet era. So do you think that it, that idea of preservation was a politically charged question and quite a conflicting one? Definitely. I definitely think it was politically charged. You know, I mentioned already the thinking back to the, the earlier era that, you know, there were there were certain focuses of Soviet preservation as well in that in that in that sort of post-war era that that weren't necessarily the same as the focuses of local preservationists. And how when you were doing your research for all of this, how did you access the ordinary voices of those trying to preserve and enhance their cultural identity? And I know you talked about going to the um, reading the visitors books, which I think is a really nice um, mm. example of, of the sort of research you did. But what about the people who were actually enacting the preservation? How did they communicate their cause? Yeah, well, yeah, I did. I, I've, so when I researched the book, I, I used archival sources a lot. I, I tracked the preservationist debates in the 1960s and 70s through regional and local archives, museum archives and libraries. But actually, as a result of working there, I encountered quite a lot of the really incredibly knowledgeable women. And it was women for the most part, because women are the ones who, who kind of work in those institutions in Russia today and who are the custodians of the historical record of that whole experience. I ended up kind of establishing quite close relationships with a lot of the archivists and, and library workers. And so I was able to, to take uh, really detailed interviews with those women about the preservationist debates that they participated in in the late Soviet period and through them to, to kind of meet and to take interviews with other members of the cultural elite, people who worked in museums, universities, archives and so on, as well as people from all walks of life who lived in the town. I was interested to talk to people about the role of heritage debates and these kind of more formalised interactions that they have with, with the heritage landscape through Vopik and their um, participation in tourism and, and museum ex expeditions, how those interactions with the heritage landscape informed their perceptions of local identity and culture. In the last chapter of the book, I write about how ideas about architectural heritage continue to inform local community sense of self, as well as the relationship between the regions and the centre. And I think uh, heritage does continue to be a source of local pride for people living in the area. It's linked with the kind of cultural achievements of the Russian nation, but also still with these ideas of the enlightened kind of policies of the post-war Soviet government who ensured that this important kind of historical architecture was preserved on the landscape. But perhaps something even more pronounced that came through in the interviews was how kind of disillusioned and resentful people felt about the fact that the local authorities today was failing to preserve the architectural heritage of this region. And this was particularly pronounced in one of the towns that I worked in in northern Russia, the town of Vologda, which has got a lot of historic wooden architecture, including some really beautiful wooden 18th and 19th century merchant mansions. And these wooden buildings, these unique kind of architectural monuments, were burning down as a matter of course, even while I was living in the town, partly as a re result of neglect, 
but also local people thought it was sometimes acts of arson on the part of the local government to free up land that would you know be really lucrative for real estate purposes so there was a feeling that there was a, a really cynical and you know quite nefarious relationship with the historical architecture of that region and that was something that that local communities felt, felt very strongly about so how do you think that that preservationist politics of the soviet era informed russia's political scene today i mean do you think that it had positive influence or do you think that it's been do you think it's sort of been bypassed I think it does continue to have an influence. The preservationist arguments and debates and perceptions that you see emerging in the Soviet period still continue, I think, to inform the way that political authorities and local communities perceive the heritage landscape. And the Putin administration, I think, continues to draw on the patriotic potential of historic architecture in the region. A couple of years ago, Novgorod celebrated its 1,150th anniversary and there were major festivities organised throughout the city at that time that I was able to to participate in. And one of the major events that took place during the the festival was the reading of a letter from President Putin congratulating the town on its anniversary and celebrating its cultural achievements. And in that letter, I think it's really important that Putin makes that same link between ideas of Russian national identity, Novgorod's historic experience and the architectural heritage of the region. So he referred to Novgorod as the birthplace of Russia, but he also singled out the historic architecture as evidence of the city's Russian authenticity, its democratic credentials and its orthodox spirituality. And that kind of discourse, I think, which draws directly on the heritage politics and the debates of the post-war Soviet Union, really demonstrates how the associations between heritage and and identity continue to resonate in the region's cultural landscape today. Thank you so much. That was fascinating. It's something that um, when you think of the of the post-Soviet culture, you you don't really you don't really think about how it is how it manifests in the architecture and how there was such a push to preserve it. Thank you so much, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. Thanks for having me. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.